With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The first ever professional baseball league serving the Middle East and South Asia, bringing America's pastime to 2 billion new fans. Let's go. John Medrick, what's going on, my friend? I appreciate you doing this. Michael, my brother, really appreciate the opportunity uh, to just talk a little bit about our mission here in Baseball United to bring the great game of baseball to 2 billion people on the other side of the world. Humble and hungry, my brother. From Lieutenant and Commanding Officer of the NYPD International Liaison Unit to the Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations for Baseball United, both titles are eye-opening, beyond impressive. Are you ready to fill in the gaps between those two awesome jobs? I hope I can. I hope I can. Where'd you grow up? I grew up on uh, Long Island, New York, um, you know, born in 79. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm lucky enough to be a 70s kid by a few months. Um, grew up just over the border, about, about five miles east of uh, the, the, the city border of Queens. Always wanted to be a cop or was there another career path you wanted to take? No, quite frankly, um, from the time I became a serious human being, all I wanted to do was become a cop. Uh, you know, school was something early on that I don't necessarily, I didn't really excel in. It's something I really didn't understand the value in. Um, quite frankly, I didn't do as well as I should have. Uh, when I kind of screwed my head on straight, um, you know, in the early, early years of, of community college, um, you know, probably late high school even, was when I really realized that, you know, I wanted to be a cop. And I think that when you're from where we're from, Mike, you know, if you want to be a cop, there's only one place to be a cop, in my opinion, and that's the NYPD. It's the only test I took. I didn't take Suffolk. I didn't take Nassau. I didn't take the state troopers. You know, when you want to be a cop, I think the only place to be a cop is with the NYPD. And then you graduate the academy, a dude from Long Island, and now you get assigned to the 7-5, East New York, Cypress Hills. That's some culture change. So you really jumped right into being a cop. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, when I when I graduated the academy, I asked to go to the seven five priest, and I figured wow. that it was the um, it was the best place to learn to really learn how to be a cop. Um, a tremendously eye opening opportunity, and it's something that I wouldn't you know trade in for the world. I think that you know, as a police officer, as you're well aware of, you know, I believe that your best asset or your best tool is the skill of communication. And, you know, being, you know, out there on the streets of, of East New York, um, I just think that, you know, as a young cop, I, I learned how to talk to people, how to respect people. And uh, really, that skill of communication started there. I didn't really, didn't, I guess at that point, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't cognizant of the fact that I was building this communication skill. But, um, you know, that's really, in hindsight, looking back at, at really what I was doing. So it was an unbelievable experience and opportunity. Um that I wouldn't trade in for anything in the world. Your family and friends think a young John Medrick is saving the world. They watch TV shows kicking in, in the doors. Maybe it was a silly arrest. Maybe it was a horrible night in the snow, wherever you are in the 7-5. Give me a night early on in your career that you're thinking to yourself, what did I sign up for? What am I doing here? Oh, I'll give you a, I'll give you a great night. Uh, I wasn't long out of the academy 
And there was a um, an inspector at the time. I mean, he winded up retiring as a three-star chief, James Secreto, but he was the commander of the precinct at the time. And, you know, so I'm a, I'm a young cop. I'm 22 years old. And it's towards the end of my tour. We're, we're an FTU, right? The field training unit. So we're working like, I think it's like a 10 in the morning to 18, you know, 35 hours to 6.35 p.m., and I, I, my sister was graduating. My young, my my younger sister was graduating from eighth grade, and you know, I, you know, this it was a great learning lesson for me. I'll tell you that much. But anyway, so I come into the precinct that I don't know. It's probably like eighteen hundred, six o'clock at night. I had thirty five minutes left for my tour. I had to do a few administrative things, so I go stand before the desk, and I can't tell you why I was doing this, but I just <laughs> thought I guess I I, I was cooler than I was, but my tie wasn't clipped on right. As you know, all of us hair bags, you, you <laughs> my tie clipped on to the one side of the open, um, you know, my open collar. And as I'm standing in front of the desk, the sergeant was like a salty guy with, you know, four or five stripes, you know, hash marks on his arm. And at that point, then Inspector Secreto comes up to the desk to get the gas card, still when you needed, you know, the gas card from the desk to fill up his car. And I was asking him to go admin and <laughs> Inspector Secreto sees me, does a double take. He takes the gas card, walks out, turns around and goes, and rookie, put your tie on correctly. Oh. So I clip my tie on. And at that point, the desk sergeant goes, when do you get off, kid? I go, I get off in 35 minutes. And I told you it was the night of my sister's graduation. He goes, OK, great. Uh, I want you to go out in Van Sicklin and New Lots and stand on a footpost there for the last 35 minutes of your tour. Anyone would know it would take me 35 minutes to walk there. So uh, unbelievable learning experience. And, and really, I think that, that that's one of my first experiences, I guess, actually on, on patrol and, and in uniform. And it was such a great lesson learned uh, that night about just, you know, doing the right thing. The way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So professionalism uh, was important. And I think that, you know, when it happened under my breath on the way, way at the post, I probably had a few choice words for both this, the, the sergeant and, and the commander at the time. But, you know, it was a great lesson learned for me. I know that was a long-winded answer, but it's something that stuck out and really, you know, it really stuck out to me how important it was to, 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 uh, I guess to to live and die by the, the rules and regulations of the organization and doing things the way that they should be done. And the uniform, the tie, when you're put together, you know, you and I have watched a million videos when they interview cop killers. They say, what made you do it? And a lot of times they're like, I didn't think of it when I saw him. He wasn't squared away. He wasn't sharp. I didn't think. So those little things that we don't think of, there's a reason they've been in place for the last 300 years in the history of policing. No, it's exactly right. And you're talking about the human psyche, which is a very deep thing. And, and you're 100 percent right. You got to look, you know, so when I bring that thing, whenever we bring it full circle, you know, one of the things that, you know, I talk about now oftentimes to my son, who's who's a young developing baseball player or players that, you know, come to play in, in the baseball United League. You know, one of the things is that I always talk to them about is you have to look the part to be the part. And, and you know, you got to you got to dress for the job you want, not necessarily for the one you have. And it, and it all fits into to that lesson, I guess, that I was taught by that desk sergeant at that day. You get promoted. You go to Queens, uh, Jackson Heights, uh, Jackson Heights, East Elmhurst. Then you get scooped up by internal affairs. Did you enjoy the supervisory rank? And how did that supervisory rank help you now with your new positions? Ah, uh, Mike, like, listen, Mike. 
really becoming a supervisor in the NYPD honestly changed my life uh, in a way I can't even explain. You know, again, I was a kid who, who all I ever wanted to do was become a city cop. As I told you, I come on the job. I'm in East New York. I was in anti-crime, you know, uh, high violence suppression unit, gun suppression unit, wearing plain clothes, uh, driving around in unmarked cars. So I, I was at like the pinnacle. I was young. I was 26, yeah, 26 years old, I guess. At this, you know, I got into the unit early on in my career and I was already there for a couple of years. I'm 26 years old and, you know, single, enjoying life. Uh, you know, I didn't think for, I had no ambition or had no idea that, you know, what the next step for me was somebody challenged me to take the sergeant's test said to me hey i bet you that i can get a higher score than you and i said what yeah i don't think you can and i'm a very headstrong guy as you've probably come to know mike and you know when somebody put that challenge to me i said to myself there's absolutely no way so what i did was i studied harder than i ever studied for every anything in my life remember going back to what i first said i wasn't a great student mm -hmm. but i started hitting the books real hard and really my number one priority was to pass that super sergeant's test and they hadn't given a test in a couple of years in like two or three years at this point just because of promotions and things like that and the way that it was going um so i take the test i think there was about just about six thousand people taking it that one saturday in 2000 and Five, I guess that was. Yeah, 2005. Um, and I wound up finishing. Well, my list number was number two. Right. So I, I, I get promoted right away. I'm 27 years old. I'm literally the youngest sergeant on the NYPD at this point um, because I hit my five years and and, you know, I was really the youngest guy on the department that time for a short time as a sergeant get deployed to um, I get you know, promoted and they sent me to the 115. I actually, again, asked to go there, such a diverse community. Um, if you look at Jackson Heights, Queens, there's more, you know, uh, there's more, uh, you know, people from, from different areas of the world in Jackson Heights than, you know, really anywhere in the world with mm -hmm. over 220 different ethnicities represented there. So just a great opportunity to go. Uh, unbelievable opportunity to be a supervisor. My first job there, I've was a was a you know a supervisor on the four to twelves just in charge of um, you know the day to day police operations within the command. I remember like uh, being a I think it was my first year. Yeah, it was I was only a sergeant a couple of months and or maybe a month and I was on the four to twelves. The you know it was Thanksgiving Day. I'm the desk sergeant who, as you know, the desk sergeant if you study for a test is in charge of all police operations in the command uh so the platoon command that winds up calling in sick and there's another <laughs> sergeant on the street so i'm thinking to myself i'm 27 years old i'm a sergeant a month and i'm in charge of this you know vast uh highly densely populated place of jackson heights i made it through the night oh thank god had great cops working for me in a short time i get um the opportunity to um to because of my expertise and a couple of things that i did to uh to really impress at that the time the deputy inspector was the commander uh they made me the field training um supervisor for some time there it was the first time i yeah so there was like an impact class which was really really cool i really got to that job i love because you got to influence young kids and what they you know uh you know who they became on this department and a few of those kids that went on to become supervising detectives and and really I, I think that i played a role an important role with shaping them in the right way then i was an anti-crime supervisor and then as you said get get grabbed by iab so 
great, great time as a supervisor. Again, another long-winded answer, but I think that was important to give some context there. No, it isn't. Just so you know, I do a million of these podcasts. The worst thing in the world is when you ask a question and they give you the quick answer right away. It's like, all right, I want, you know, you want to get to learn the guest, but another test, another promotion, I think it was around 2010 and you get transferred to Intel. You don't get assigned to East New York or East Elmhurst. You go into the Middle East. Explain how this international liaison unit gig came about and you going abroad. John Niedrich from Long Island going abroad. How'd this happen? So actually, yes, so you're 100% right. Well, you're 99% right. I was actually still a sergeant when I got uh, brought into Intel. So okay. I go to Intel in, I was in internal affairs, as you know, and I, you know, was looking for where to, when I got assigned to, to you know, internal affairs, most people or, or a lot of people think that's like a death sentence, right? And what I said to myself was, I'm going to really use this as an opportunity to learn, right? To learn the job from another perspective, to learn the skill of, of uh, investigations and as a supervisor managing and supervising investigations. I also just started to do a deep dive in studying on radical Islamic terror. And, you know, as I did that for my two years, I was in internal affairs, just about two years. As I started to doing that, I, I it, you know, it came across my, my, my desk somewhere. I read that the NYPD had this overseas liaison unit in which it was, you know, a unit that was built after 9-11. Obviously, 9-11 taught NYPD that terrorism has a global reach. And in response, that NYPD understood that we need to have a global reach to prevent global terrorism. Right. So um, I, it was you know, news to me that we had NYPD detectives and sergeants deployed around the world. So actually there was a, there was a news article. I forget what newspaper it was. It was one of the uh, New York newspapers had a, had an article in which they talked about the NYPD's international liaison program. And they interviewed then commissioner Raymond Kelly. Um, and the exact heading of the title of the article was um, not strong, you know, how they call the police, the strong arm of the law. The name of the article was the long arm of the law. And there was a picture of the world, the globe with NYPD logos or, you know, in the different, you know, representing different cities in which the liaisons were located. And so I read this and I kind of said, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. This, this, this can't be true. I cut out the article and I hung it right on the, on the wall next to my desk. And I would read it every single day at work in internal affairs. And a lot of the people said to me, well, what are you looking at that for? Like, that's such an elite unit. You're in internal affairs. Nobody can. I mean, that's like the elite of the elite of the elite. And to be honest with you, as I told you already, a challenge was already made in my mind. So I said, no, I'm going to this unit. Um, next thing you know, I, I do a few interviews uh, to go to this unit um, with then commission. Well, a couple of people, Chief Tom Galati, who is now still the chief of, of counterterrorism and intelligence, uh, who was one of my, really my mentor on this job. Um, then David Cohen, who was the ex deputy commissioner of counterterrorism for the NYPD. So I went to probably half the half a dozen to 10 interviews for this job um, to get into Intel to one of the overseas position. Uh, I, my wife is from the Dominican Republic. I have um, some property down there. I speak fluent Spanish. So my, my wish was to go down to the Dominican Republic. So <laughs> I do all these, I do these interviews and I do, I guess I do a good job on them. And, and I get a call that says, okay, we're interested in offering your position. So I tell my wife, I think I'm going to the DR. 
I show, I show up <laughs> in the police plaza, room 1108, which you know what room that is. And, I, and, I'm, and they said, hey, you did great on the interviews. We want to offer you a spot. And I said, great. Where am I going to go um, in intelligence? They said, how's the Mont Jordan sound? Um, so it was a little bit different than, than what I was thinking. However, what I can say is it was an unbelievable opportunity at an unbelievable time in an unbelievable place to do the type of work that we were there doing. So, um, again, divinely, um, divine intervention, I, I believe. Day-to-day activities there included what? Well, our, you know, the NYPD liaison unit, uh, international domestic liaison unit is a unit under the police department, uh, the intelligence bureau. And the job is basically you're sharing best practices, lessons learned, uh, real-time information and intelligence that allows the NYPD to play a, you know, I guess a, 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 a preventative or proactive defense against terror and transnational crime. So my job, you know, was unlike many other of the American law enforcement or diplomatic community that was, you know, on the ground in Amman. You know, I didn't show up at the American embassy every day. That's not where my office was. My job was every single day I reported to uh, Jordanian police, the PSD, the Public Security Directorate's Intelligence Bureau, uh, and worked with them on a day-to-day basis in order to create, you know, those direct relationships, cop-to-cop relationships, in order to, to again, play, play really for, for, for the, war, the war on terror and transnational crime. Do you think out there is where you really understood the importance of building connections, cultivating relationships that led you to Baseball United, which we're going to talk about because the relationships you have at Baseball United is out of control. Do you think there in Jordan is where you really solidified your gift of making connections and seeing how important relationships are? Well, yeah, I, I would say that that's actually where I probably for the first time realized how significant, you know, these these relationships are because the reality is when there's trust you know one of the things that the nypd does and and i learned from you know doing this job as as a liaison officer and then later on as the commander of the unit was you know it's so important to have a relationship prior to needing that relationship right so we put so much time effort and and really resources into front-loading those relationships to create a strong bond you know, between us and other organizations so that if and when we need to call on that organization or those individuals in that organization for the needs of the organ for the needs of the NYPD, it's not like I'm giving I'm cold calling you. Right. So I understood how important it was. And, and I think that one of the other things that, you know, a lot of people who aren't in this business really just don't understand. And I actually, when I became the commander of the unit, had to really communicate this to the executive levels of the organization was that it's a hard work maintaining and building a network, right? It's hard work. You know, I know that there's a lot of friendships that are gained out of it. And there's a lot of things that are done outside of the normal business hours Mm -hmm. and the normal office that kind of you know, solidify these relationships, but it is hard work. And, and, you know, hats off to all the the guys and gals who worked with me and for me uh, doing that. What I would say is you said that did the NYPD, they, the NYPD in this position really taught me how important those relationships were, were. but I, I can say this, 
where I learned how to do it wasn't from myself. It was from a lot of the, the people who worked for me because they were a lot better at it than I was, quite frankly. I think that when I, when I look around the world and see some of the, the individuals who I worked with when I was overseas and then who worked under me when I commanded the unit, they really showed me how to do it. I understood the importance when I was in Jordan, but maybe I, I don't think that I was at the level that a lot of the liaisons for NYPD are, quite frankly. So I would say I learned the importance of it from that position, but I learned how to do it, I think, from the people who worked under me, quite frankly. And how long were you stationed out there in Jordan? I was there for two and a half years. Uh, I was there from 2000. And, you know, just to give you a little time, I think this is a, this is an important one here. So I, I get to, to Amman in two. 2010 in March of 2010 in like the middle of March and you know if you just go back to your history books here um I get there right after the Syrian civil wars you know uh explodes in Amman if you just look geographically where it is you're only about 40 miles south of the Syrian border so a lot of the Syrian refugees who you know, unfortunately, we just, you know, uh, destroyed and, and had nowhere to go um, that had to flee Syria, had made their way into Jordan. Um, many of them were housed up in northern Jordan in refugee camps. Um, however, thousands upon thousands obviously made their way to Amman because they had family connections, you know, um, who moved there earlier or they were intermarried with Jordanian families. So uh, I get there, as I said, in, in, in March. The, the Arab Spring was in full, you know, full effect. Osama bin Laden what was, you know, what they found Osama bin Laden on, on May 1st. So it was like six weeks after I got there. Uh, so really, really just an unbelievable uh, time, right? An unbelievable time to be in the Middle East. Just uh, really just learned a lot and then spent, you know, the next 30 months there and, and, and came back. What food did you miss the most while you were out there? Oh, I guess being a New Yorker and being from uh, Western Nassau County, I'm going to go with pizza, right? <laughs> you can't find the good slice of pizza. Now, there's obviously much debate amongst us New Yorkers. What is the best slice? You know, uh, some prefer Sicilian, some prefer, you know, just a, a regular New York slice. So I, I would say pizza, and it may be from uh, King Umberto's in Elmont. Wow, you even went specific on me. Now, you're back in New York City, and now you're the commanding officer of one, and you used the word I was going to use, the one not only of the most elite units in the NYPD, but realistically, and maybe the whole world of policing. You're in charge of all these posts all over the world. Did you enjoy the gig? And now you come back. You were there. You were in Jordan. Now you're back. I hate to sound silly, but you're in charge of the whole world now. You have all these posts all over. Did you feel the stress of it at the time? Well, um, so I come back and I'm and I'm basically, uh, you know, offered the position to to command the International Domestic Liaison Program. And it was just such a humbling opportunity for me. Um, I'm not sure at that time I understood the significance of it, to be quite honest with you. Uh, yeah, just unbelievable, unbelievable opportunity You see day to day. I mean, when you're looking at it from a from a managerial and commanding the organization, obviously, I worked directly under the chief of intelligence. Um, but quite frankly, the strategic direction of the organization and the day to day operations were, were basically under my responsibility. Um, just such an unbelievable experience. I mean, I, I now when I think back, I kind of pinch myself just because I mean, you know, Mike and and 
to, 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 to start, you know, we talked about being a kid from Long Island and, you know, starting in East New York to getting drafted to, well, going to go into uh, the 115 and Jackson Knights and then to go into internal affairs, you know, to be on six continents on behalf of the NYPD and dozens and dozens of countries, you know, one has to pinch themselves and say, how did this happen? How, how did this happen? You know, um, and really to do some really good work and really, really um, work that I'm proud of. And I'm proud of the people that I worked with, quite frankly, for what we did, whether it was November 13th, 2015, when the bombs went off in Paris, um, you know, quite frankly, I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm not sure there was a better time and place to be than there as the commander of that unit for the time that I was there. Really just, you know, I, I'm still, I, as I said, I pinched myself and, I, and I'm forever in debt to, you know, Chief Galati and, and, you know, just for believing in me to give me the opportunity to do this. There was a job, the time that the International Liaison Unit uh, came on my radar was 2018. I believe you were the boss. There was this famous job in New York, uh, the tragic murder of an eight-month-old baby. Can you tell mm -hmm. that story about how the whole thing transpired? Because that's when it came on everyone's radar. There's been cops who were cops for 30 years. Like, we have guys overseas. Tell that story because that's one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it's another great point, Mike. And, and, you know, to give you a little bit of background, and I don't remember every single detail of it, but generally I remember the case and I know exactly what you're speaking of. But to give you a little background, and I think it's important because you just said, you know, you're an NYPD detective and, and, and like you said, there's guys you know, and gals who spend, you know, a decade or two decades with the organization, they don't even know we have people overseas. Because as, as I talked about, much of what I was talking about was our, let's say, our counterterrorism intelligence mission. One of the things that happened under the, you know, under my command when I was in charge of, of the day-to-day the -day ops of the unit, however, through the leadership of the chief intelligence at the time, we really, we really made a business decision, if you will, in order to shift our focus from strictly being like on boots on the ground for counterterrorism, but being full service police liaisons to assist the NYPD and its investigators in, in, in a myriad of ways, not just in counterterrorism. So this is one of those cases where it wasn't a terrorism case. You said it was, you know, as you said, it was a homicide of a young uh, baby who was, I believe it, that I've, I think it, the baby was less than a year old. Yeah, eight or, months, actually. Oh, eight months. There you go. So from the, my recollection of the story, basically what happens is there's a baby who is found in the East River somewhere right around the base of the Brooklyn Bridge by a family, um, by a family who's visiting, uh, you know, tourists basically to New York City. And the basically the baby, obviously, they call the police. Uh, the 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 um, the coroners take you know possession of the baby, but obviously an investigation takes place. This has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with my unit. It's strictly the traditional detective bureau who 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 you know investigate you know crimes in New York City. And somehow or another, they put two and two together that there's a baby missing from the Bronx, right? And and so there was a, a custody battle, or, or there was you know a, a case in which. A mother and a father had some kind of shared custody over this eight-month-old baby, and the father had came to pick up the baby for his weekend stay, um, at which time I believe that the, the father murdered the baby up in his apartment in the Bronx and uh, put the baby's uh, body, the corpse, in his, in a, like, basically a backpack, 
and walked it out and dumped it in the river, uh, the baby in the river. So, again, not an intelligence bureau case, strictly detective bureau. But what happens was when they identify, and this happened over the weekend, I believe, um, this case was going on. And, and what had happened was they identified the, the father as obviously the lead suspect in the case. So the detectives in the case called the NYPD intelligence bureaus, um, you know, 24 hour uh, operations unit to kind of do a travel or put a travel alert on this, you know, the father because he was the lead suspect in the case. When they do that, they realize the, the father already beat town and was on a flight. Um, so that's when my unit gets activated because now we know the father is outside the continent of the United States or outside of New York City, I should say. And now it's basically, hey, how can you guys help? So it was a really, really unique case. And, and I, let me just try to remember exactly what had happened. But so I think what had happened was the father was on a flight to Abu Dhabi, which um, which was a, 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 you know, a travel hub for, for the Eastern Hemisphere in which, you know, it was basically a layover flight. So when we get this information, the way we were able to do that was when the information comes into the ops desk, we go to CBP, Customs and Border Protection. We ask them to do a travel check on this individual. They tell us, yeah, he's on a flight to Abu Dhabi. We wake up our detective in Abu Dhabi. It was the middle of the night there. We say, hey, we need you to find this guy and grab this guy off the flight. He says, okay, yeah, I can try to do that. When he called his contacts, again, the relationships are so important because he was able to wake people up out of bed and to, you know, do him the favor and to do the NYPD the favor to try to, you know, find this needle in the haystack. They get back to our liaison and say, hey, by the way, he already beat it. He's he's gone. And we don't necessarily know where he went because, um, you know, if he was just coming through as a transit, um, you know, traveler, we don't log all those travelers in it was only if he actually left the airport and got into abu dhabi so that didn't happen we said well we really need this guy because of what had happened he just killed his eight-year-old uh baby they said okay you know what we're gonna do we're gonna go to the next step we're gonna stop pulling flight manifests and try to find what flight left around that time and what flight he got on so they had located hit they had located him on a flight going into i believe it was mumbai but but india for sure i believe um they said, hey, you know, start working on that. But this is the flight the guy's on. We start calling contacts there. We find out that he already landed in India and he already boarded a flight on his way to Singapore. Oh, my God. No, no, excuse me. Thailand on his, on his way to Thailand, uh, Bangkok, Thailand. He was landing in Bangkok, Thailand in about in about two hours from then. So he was wheels up from India about two hours out of Bangkok. We wake up our liaison in Singapore, um, who is a sergeant um, who's been out there, a, you know, a good amount of time. But it comes back to what I was talking about, front loading those relationships. We have a great relationship at this point with the Royal Thai Police because our liaison there would make regular trips, you know, to maintain those relationships and really build out his network. So, again, he's now able to press go right away once he gets this call, um, calls the Royal Thai Police. They wind up saying, yeah, no problem. We'll we'll take care of it. Um, we now make the decision that our liaison is going to be in route to Thailand and land. He's as he's making the phone calls to the Royal Thai police. He's on his way to the airport himself to get yeah, this the Singapore liaison going there. Exactly. So he's in Singapore. He's on his way to Thailand, um, lands about two hours after the suspect lands. Now, he is. Where, where, where things get, and this will show you the value and the strength of the NYPD's relationships and how important this unit is 
for really transnational to fight transnational crime. See, if the royal type police would have stamped this guy's passport and he would have got, you know, and he's free on the, the streets of, of Bangkok. By the way, there's more hotels in Bangkok than anywhere in the world. And I'm sure you know because you're a Look, world. I'm player. actually wearing a Bangkok shirt right now. <laughs> small world, small world. <laughs> so if he goes out and hits the streets of Bangkok, good luck trying to find this guy. Now, there's no doubt eventually the U.S. Marshal Service is someone would have found them. But how many months, how mm-hmm. many resources would have it took? Then when they get him, now there's a whole extradition process that needs to take place because he's in Bangkok. He's in Thailand. And now you're going to waste you know, a year of time and taxpayer money to now negotiate the terms of this guy being, you know, the really extradited out of, out of Thailand. The catch here was because we got him before he ever was wheels down and he never crossed the passport threshold. Technically the Thai police department or the Thai border authorities never allowed him to come into the country. So he was never in Thailand. Well, <laughs> he's in the airport standing on, on, let's say the, the, the Thailand's, um, you know, airport, the, 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 you know, actually the turf, but mm-hmm. he was never admitted entry into Thailand. So they say, as long as we don't let him pass border control, we'll just keep him off to a room before that person stamps his passport, which exactly is what they did. They put him in this room and they said, stay here. The next thing that he heard was this, and this is a true story. The next thing he heard was, because remember, I told you the Singapore liaison had was landed in about an hour and a half, two hours after he did. And the sergeant, I won't say the sergeant's name, but he went into the room. He says, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I'm Sergeant So-and-so from the NYPD. We're here to talk to you about. And the guy just looks at him and goes, holy shit, how did you get here this quick? (laughs) So what had happened at that point was we took our liaison from Abu Dhabi. He also flew out to meet our to meet our liaison you know our singapore our singapore liaison in thailand and the guy and our liaison at the time who was in abu dhabi is actually a thai american it speaks thai so we actually sent him into thailand as well to help out so these two detectives handcuffed this guy put him on a plane back to jfk airport in which myself and a couple of other um uh you know the detective from the from the homicide case were at the tarmac to grab this guy off the plane. And that happened literally from the first phone call to the time we're on the tarmac was uh, was less than 48 hours. It was probably like 36, well, maybe 48 hours from, from start to finish. So just an unbelievable story of, of to show the network and how important and really why such a unit is, is critical for an organization like the NYPD. Now you're doing... Cool things like that. Like, that's a podcast. That's a movie. That's a short story. That's incredible. Why do you retire? When do you know it's time to hang up the cuffs and you know, you know what? I'm done with this. Well, I think that, you know, I spent eight years as the commander of the the International Domestic Liaison Unit. Eight years. And I think that, you know, as I said before, I was on six continents. I've done so much and, and just had such a blessed career. And, you know, I, I, I pitch myself every day when I think about what I accomplished and, and really what the opportunities that the NYPD gave to me and the people who believed in me and gave me that oppor- those opportunities, you know, uh, I'm forever in debt. But I, I think for my family, I've spent in such, you know, a large amount of time at work, you know, away from, from my, my wife and three children and, you know, all over the world, globe hopping, which I know you like to do, <laughs> uh, 
you know, I figured, you know, I, I really wanted to be there and help, you know, raise my, be more involved with raising my, my, my children. Um, as you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm uh, as much as I love the NYPD, I'm a passionate father. And I think that that really the calling to be, to be a father um, and really just be more engaged in my kid's life was why um, I ultimately made the decision to separate from the NYPD and retire. Yep. Many police officers have side jobs. 99% of them are security officers or drivers. I think I'm the only crazy one with a podcast. You had a really different one. You were running baseball camps in Dominican Republic. And again, another cool title. So we learned about John Medrick, Lieutenant John Medrick. Now you were the GM of JV3 Baseball in Santa Domingo DR. What, what was that about? How did you get involved in that? Because that was, when I heard that, I'm like, Psh, what are you yeah. talking about? He runs baseball camps. How did that even happen? Well, you know, I've been, I've been traveling back and forth to the Dominican Republic for about 20 years. I speak fluent Spanish, you know, going back to my 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 days in academia that I, that we academia where we talk about um, where I was talking about me not being exactly a stellar student. I remember, you know, barely passing high school Spanish by the, 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 the like literally by inches and me saying, I'm never going to need this, learn this. I'm never going to need to learn this. I wound up you know, fall in love with Hispanic culture and, and really learning to speak the language, listen to the music, um, traveling for, for 20 years back and forth to the Dominican Republic. When I went to the Dominican Republic, I've been married now for, you know, over 15 years. Um, when I started going back and forth, like quite frequently with, with my wife and also, you know, on my own, you know, I just fell in love with the culture and the people. And, and you know, I, I had the opportunity to go and, and just, check out some local little leagues in Santiago where my wife's from. Um, I got some properties in Santiago as well, but I would go back and forth and it would just, you know, I would just scratch my head and say, you know, growing up and having the opportunities just to play sports as we know, Mike, you know, look, we're two huge sports buffs and, and we love sports. And, you know, although we never necessarily played sports at a professional level, we've talked about this offline, you know, sports have helped shape who we ultimately became, um, you know, the team building, the overcoming adversity, the mental toughness uh, piece of sports that we, that we were able to take and become, you know, helped us become successful in life. You know, when I was looking at what was going on down there and I said, wow, you know, just look at the, the conditions these kids play in. You know, literally when you hear the stories, I know you hear stories about, oh, they were using like a fishing net wrapped up and tied. And, you know, they were using a cardboard mitt as a glove. No, it's true. You know, it's true. You know, they're running around the bases barefoot. It's absolutely true because, you know, I saw it, you know, firsthand for the last two decades. So I got involved early on just philanthropically, quite frankly, just helping out, you know, funding some little leagues like, you know, buying 100 kids in a little league in Santiago uniforms, you know, doing, uh, you know, anytime I was in, you know, I, I would be in Modell's Sporting Goods. Um, if that dates me, I guess, a little bit, but I was in Modell's Sporting Goods, you know, at the end of baseball season here in the States, and I would see a bunch of baseball mitts, 80% off, you know, selling for a cheap price. I would literally pick up dozens of them with my own money and, you know, just go down and hand them out you know, hand them out down in the DR. Uh, you know, I would, myself and my brother, my, my, my brother Warren was very involved as well as, you know, Victor, uh, my good friend, Victor Campos has been very involved with me in doing that, you know, fixing up their fields. So it just became a passion just to help kids. And then with that, I, I, I kind of just started, you know, learning from some of the best, uh, 
trainers, you know, and instructors, I believe in the world. I, I really just, and it's not that much different than policing. You say, what are you talking about? And it's really not like when I started learning the ins and outs of becoming a baseball trainer instructor, it's just, you know, I believe, and, and again, this is just my, my, my opinion on it. You know, I'm not saying that I'm the best in the world. Uh, what I would say is I have an extreme um, I can pay extreme attention to detail the same way we can and we were taught to do from the police department. And when you have that skill set and, and the willingness to remain coachable, there's not much you can't learn. Right. So I was just given the opportunity. Again, people believed in me again. Uh, people gave me an opportunity to share their knowledge and their experience with me, um, which I looked at this as a great opportunity just to be a sponge and soak up everything when it comes to you know, developing a player from a physical standpoint, de developing a player from a mental standpoint, hitting skills, throwing skills, fielding skills, and then understanding how to put that all together and eventually market players to one of the 30 organizations of Major League Baseball. So I, I would say it was something I surely wasn't looking for when I started. But again, people just believe in me and willing to pour their expertise and, and, and their knowledge into me. And I guess me just being willing to listen. You moved down to God's country. Now you're retired. You have a little few gigs. You have a beautiful family coaching your son, who's an up and coming stud athlete, but instead of staying retired, chilling in a nice backyard, having a beer, relaxing, you take on a project, but this isn't just a little project, a side gig. It's a potentially worldwide sporting changing venture. So let's get to it. Let's talk about this thing. I heard it on Mike Francesa, Dan Patrick, WFAN, CBS Radio with Maggie Gray. How did John Medrick get involved in Baseball United? How did this whole thing come about? Oh, Mike, uh, again, you know, I think that when you talk about everything in your life, right, that, that you know, that I, that I was experienced in my life that I was able to accomplish, that people were able to pour into me, I think that was just setting myself and really the rest of this group up to do the impossible and, and, you know, bring baseball to 2 billion people on the other side of the world. You know, when you think about the group that we have put together, really it's an all-star team. It's a hall of fame team, quite frankly, um, of individuals. And when I say it's a hall of fame team, there's no doubt we have two hall of famers uh, already on board. And we have a few future hall of famers who are going to be announcing pretty soon. But it's not just those Hall of Famers. And I'll tell you, I think the world of those guys, and, and this is not taking anything away from them, but it's the entire group is a Hall of Famer in their own right. Um, our CEO, uh, Cash Shake, if you get to know this guy from a business and leadership uh, perspective, Hall of Famer every day of the week. Um, you know, the group of, of individuals that we that we've put together to build to build this this dream of of. Baseball United, it's just mind-blowing. You know, when you say you came out of retirement, no, no, no. This is like a dream come true for me. This is me living like a childhood dream, uh, quite frankly. And and I don't even look, you know, you know, when they say you don't work a day in your life, you don't, you know, if you're doing what you love, and, and this is more than something I love. This this is the essence of who we are. I mean, every single person who's involved in baseball United is just so over the top passionate about this. And, you know, obviously it's a baseball league long by in November, 2023, but it's so much bigger than that, right? Baseball United is a platform in which, you know, we are going to take 
not only the top-down approach with the professional league, but actually a bottom-up approach, a grassroots approach to, you know, mass participation, boys, girls, you know, of all colors, religions, creeds, ages, participating in the game of baseball, um, you know, and really learning and exporting American goodwill and American culture through the game of baseball. Um, so it's, it's a dream project and, 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 you know, it's something that, that I, again, I don't think, you know, I got to pinch myself again, uh, for, for, you know, when we talked about my, my, my past, I mean, I was talking about pinching myself cause I can't believe it's a reality, but then I actually got to be honest with you by the grace of God. And, and I was given an opportunity by the group that I'm working with to be a part of this. It's such a humbling experience to be where I am um, here because I really have to pinch myself again and say, how the hell am I where I am in the position that I'm in with the group, you know, that, that we're, that I'm we're about to make history with. So just really exciting stuff, man. When we're drunk at a bar, you know, you'll text your boy, Hey bro, let's run the marathon. Let's go, let's go to Thailand and, uh, you know, play with the tigers and stuff. You have this idea, obviously a million parts, a million moving pieces. When did you really know, like, Oh, we have something here. Was it when someone signed on? Was it when the team came? When did you know, like, no, this is this is going to happen? Um, you know, when, when when you have the guy, the, the the individuals that we have on board, right, and everyone brings their own skill set. You know, like I talked about our CEO Cash Shake, uh, you know, a couple of minutes ago. You know, when you bring a guy like him on board, right, and you see the skill set that he brings. I realize how much I don't know and how much I need to learn, right? When you bring a guy like B. Lark, Barry Larkin, my boy, um, on board, and, and you see, obviously, we as baseball fans from the generation that watched B. Lark playing know what he was on the field. But then when you hear about, when you hear him speak eloquently about the game and his, his vision and about the baseball curriculum that is created his experience to bring the game internationally, whether it's to Brazil was involved in the million dollar on project at India. When you hear this, you're like, Oh my God, I have so much to learn. So I guess when, when you think about Mariano, the goat, right. And, and you see the passion and the humility in Mariano and how much he's been involved and really believes in what we're doing. When you, when you see that, like, and I'm just using three of the guys um, who are really front and center as, as faces of what we're doing. Cash, uh, my boy Cash, my brother Cash, uh, B-Lark, and, and Mariana. When you see those guys, I think when I saw them come aboard and I realized how much they knew that I didn't, that's kind of when I know, okay, this is something serious here. It's not just, you know, even though it was a dream, it could still be a dream, but a dream without the plan and the ability to execute it's simply a dream. I mean, I think that the guys I mentioned as well as some others in the background have made this dream uh, more than a dream and surely put together a plan that we're currently executing. So um, I think that my come to Jesus moment, if you will, when in, in regards to when I knew it's when I realized what they knew um, and how much I did. I'm going to piggyback on that. Cause I've been on a lot of those phone calls, a lot of those zooms. And I remember, uh, you told me about it initially. You're like, hey, Mike, I had this idea. And you told me, I remember, I'm like, this is a sick idea. But again, you and I, NYPD, that's it. We're like, let's go play baseball in Dubai. And then, you know, 
you're telling me more. I'm asking a lot more questions. And I'll tell you the moment for me when I knew it was big. It was one of the first calls with Barry Larkin. I was on the, the, the Zoom with you guys, the FaceTime. And Larkin cut everybody off and goes, uh, we know about the professionals. When are we going to do, are we doing something with the Little League guys? I want to build them up because in 15 years, and when he, Barry Larkin, I never even thought about, he's like, listen, we'll get the pros in there tomorrow. That's not a problem. We'll get any pro we want to play tomorrow with you guys. I want the eight-year-old to develop to the 18-year-old stud. We're gonna, when he started talking about 15, 20, 25-year development, I'm like, oh my God, this is way bigger than I thought. And I started seeing the ideas from everybody. I'm like, oh, we... We had a small piece of it. These guys look so – they made the whole thing complete. Oh, that's right. You know, yeah, yeah. well said, Mike. I'll tell you. You know, the sustainability in what we're doing is through the kids, right? It's through, the, it's through the, this young generation. You know, when kids – as you know, that part of the world, you're talking about there's a billion um, cricket fans, which is another bat and ball sport. They have a skill set that I'm not saying it's exact the same as baseball but they have a skill set of swinging and throwing and catching and running right um the really the biggest bat and ball sport on earth is cricket now when you talk about baseball right and we and we as baseball united are successful in putting a bat and ball in these kids hands and giving them that experience to fall in love with the game like we did we know that's the sustainability and that's the future right it, Simply, we have a we have a mission statement, and the mission statement is not, you know, so overthought. It's not, you know, it's very simple. It's to inspire two billion new baseball fans on the other side of the globe. That's our mission statement, and as we do that, and as we're successful in that mission, um, that's the sustainability piece. So we're so committed to the bottom up approach. And I'll tell you this: our that you know, look, we love obviously the league, but when you want to talk passion with the likes of cash, Mariano, uh, Barry, myself, Warren, Victor, some, you know, the team that's involved, Eddie Diaz, another one um, who, who has a great background in the game of baseball. But when you talk about getting people excited on our team, it's about the, you know, how do we reach out to the kids? How do we reach out to the youth? How do we give people the opportunity kids to play the opportunity you know, give kids the opportunity to play the game of baseball, to fall in love with the game of baseball. What I'll say is, you know, one of the things that we do in Baseball United, and Barry's very passionate about this, is, and it's funny because Barry is an ex-player, obviously, who played at the highest level and is a former Hall of Famer. But one of the things that he constantly reminds us of, and every Zoom call that I'm on, um, quite frankly, it's some way or another it comes out, baseball's not just about the players. For every player that's on the field, there's 12 people behind him, generally speaking, who's working in order to put that product on the field. So as we go and we, we inspire these two, 2 billion fans on the other side of the globe, maybe they all will not have the opportunity or the capability or the capacity to play professional baseball. But if we do our job and inspire them to love the game and teach them life lessons through the game, then we'll also have opportunities that come along to be, you know, hey, maybe a kid isn't a great, you know, doesn't have enough ability to play at the professional level, but they're a great communicator. And they could be a broadcaster in a league or somebody who, you know, a young girl who loves the game and loves to be on the field, but maybe isn't going to have the opportunity to play professionally. She happens to be good at math. Maybe she, they could be a statistician in a league. So we've committed to this overall building of a baseball infrastructure of not just about the games and putting players on the field. 
like I said, it takes a tremendous amount of resources and really, uh, you know, everything that goes on behind the scenes makes the game possible. So not only are we investing in the game and the league, but we're investing in the individuals who are going to make that league and, and really what we're doing possible. How'd you get involved with Mariano Rivera and Barry Locking? Because those are the two when everyone's like, they hear about Baseball United, everyone's like, oh, that's a great idea. Then you're like, oh, yeah, we have Mariano Rivera and Barry Locking. Like, Whoa, now this is, it gave you such credibility, so much street cred. How'd you get involved with those two? Well, you know, well, obviously those, in my opinion, those guys are, are two legends. And those guys are two guys who whose names are so, you know, synonymous with greatness on the field but just as important off the field. Um, hence, that's why, you know, we wanted to go after, we wanted to go approach both of those individuals and let them know what we're doing. And I'll tell you this, both of those guys have been on since the earliest stages. And those guys aren't like figureheads that we use, you know, their, 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 you know, their, their face or their, their, or, or a picture or a video. no, these guys are involved. I mean, Mike, look, you said you were on numerous Zoom calls, and, and it's true. I mean, obviously, the listeners are kind of like, yeah, they're, they're probably just, you know, you're using their like, image. Oh, like, no. So these oh, guys, no. These guys are in the trenches. I mean, you got to meet Mariano on multiple occasions doing some press stuff, and as well as Barry. And, um, you know, these guys are just class acts. And, and the thing is, we knew that we wanted people who were going to be in the trenches with us who – had experience internationally as they both have with the game of baseball and were passionate with integrity. And really, you know, our CEO cash always talks about, you know, building the right way with the right people. And we've had many uh, ball players that we've spoke to and, and you'll, we'll be making announcements in the near future about some of uh, the new additions, but really from a, from a, a governance and steward stewardship perspective, we we couldn't be more blessed to have the two Hall of Famers that we have, Mariano and Barry, uh, with us from day one in the trenches, um, with their passion um, to to make this a reality. So, uh, hats off to them because you asked how I guess we got them. Really, it was just a matter of, you know, I'll I'll, I'll steal a line from from. My boy Cash here, he talks about oftentimes the angel in the marble, right? So normal people like myself see a slab of marble. Michelangelo saw an angel. He carved away until that angel was there. When we presented uh, what we were doing, I got to be honest with you, by the grace of God, I think Mariano and Barry saw the angel in the marble. And it wasn't just about you know, a business that was going to be thriving. No, no, this was about doing good, building right with the right people in order to give people an opportunity to fall in love with the game that's done so much for all of us. So I, I think, as Cash says, they had the ability to see the angel in the marble. You're a huge sports fan, as am I. And one of my favorite games is when you uh, send me a picture of who you're uh, FaceTiming with or Zooming at that time. As a fan, I'm like, how are we not signing blank right now? But yet you afterwards, you're like, no, Mike, you know, integrity wise, there's so many other, other factors besides a name thing. Did you realize that when you start having these big names on, 
And then not that you're going to turn them away, but maybe they not may might not be involved right away. Was that weird for you being a sports fan, being like, oh my God, I'm in, I'm interviewing Hall of Famer Blank, but he's not a good fit for the league. Um, yeah, I, I guess in some regards it does because as a sports fan, you know, and, and a guy who grew up in the generation we grew up in watching these guys on TV, yeah, there's obviously that that moment of wow can't believe I have the opportunity to speak to so-and-so and, 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 you know, interview them for a potential position. But I would say this, you know, going back to my time with the NYPD, you know, because of the position that I was in, I, I was, I had the, the, the awesome opportunity, um, you know, to stand shoulder to shoulder with the president of the United States, with the prime minister of Australia, with the King of Jordan and, and the likes of those people. Um, so I think that that gave me a little bit of an experience uh, different than most would have taking such a position and then also being involved in the Dominican Republic with my, uh, with my, you know, the, the baseball Academy that we talked about earlier, you know, I, I was exposed and, and have been around pro ball players for a very long time. So one of the things that you realize is that human beings are human beings and human beings, right. And they all put that, we all put our pants on the same way. And um, when you think of it from that perspective, and you think about what we're trying to do in Baseball United, again, inspire 2 billion new people to fall in love with the game of baseball. You know, it, it's, it's as important at, right at the top of our, our, our level of importance is who we bring aboard. So, you know, it, you know, this is so much bigger than any one of us. It's so much bigger than me. So I think that when you think of it from that perspective, it doesn't make it as challenging as it would be uh, if you didn't. Right now, the next big event is the Baseball United Showcase, November 2023. Tell me about that. I know nothing's set in stone yet. What does it entail? Because on the website, BaseballUnited.com, it looks sick. We're going to have a showcase, November 2023. Tell me about it. Yeah, no, we're excited, Mike. So November 2023, it's going to be the first time ever. History in the making, my friend. It's going to be, you know, the first presentation of professional baseball ever on the Arabian Peninsula. We're going to be playing at Dubai International Stadium, which is a 25,000-seat stadium. It would be like, I guess for the baseball listeners, the sports fans on, you know, listeners, it would be like the Yankee Stadium of the cricket world in Dubai, right? And, you know... We're going to be converting that to a, to a baseball field uh, for, for our games. We're going to be bringing over four, uh, four franchises. Again, these are new franchises. We'll be announcing the names of them uh, in the near future with professional players. Um, we have an extremely diverse roster with a very, very, very high level of baseball being played. I mean, you know, I could tell you this. We have over 30 countries represented on our rosters. And when you look at from a quality perspective, of play perspective, we're in the top five leagues in the world. Um, you obviously got Major League Baseball, the Nippon League, the Korean Baseball League, and we believe we're right there at number four, um, Baseball United. The quality of play, we have, you know, we've went out, we found the best player, the best pitcher, you know, from Finland, uh, throwing a ball 90 plus miles an hour. But then we'll also have, you know, who's played professionally in, in Australia, he's played professionally in, in um in Europe as well, but then we'll have a guy who's a ten-year major league, uh, major league vet. You know, who, who's you know spent ten years in the big leagues on those rosters. So, you know, we're excited about it. Uh, this is going to be our first one million fans, right? And what I mean by one million, I'm talking about those who tune in, those who show up at the stadium. So we're really excited about it. it it's going to be really 
earth shattering and, and really it's going to be where we prove to the rest of the world here we are uh baseball united's here to stay and and, and we're excited you're the executive vice president of baseball operations that means what well that means i'm in charge of all you know things baseball related um that could be anything from you know developing the rosters so it's player acquisition right it, it, it's negotiating the terms of the contracts that the players sign it's um you know, interviewing uh, our managers and coaches and, and some of the managers and coaches that we already have locked in are very notable uh, guys out of the major leagues. And, you know, when we announce those in, in, in the coming uh, weeks and months, I'm sure many of your listeners will know who these people are mm-hmm. uh, it's about interviewing them and eventually deciding um you know, who's going to be getting a job and where they're going to be. It's, you know, equipment procurement. Like, so, you know, there's not necessarily baseballs in Dubai right at the moment. There's not necessarily bats. How do we now build the field out like we're talking about? Um, It's, you know, getting the training staff there. What if there's an injury? You know, game match umpires, statisticians. It's basically every single responsibility um, uh, necessary to put the product of baseball on the field, you know, procurement of uniforms as well. Like, so all those things are, are really under my responsibility. Initially, how many teams are we going to have? So our, our short-term plan is we're going to have most likely four teams come to the showcase. Uh, you know, then right after our showcase in November of 2023, where we'll have four franchises playing, just after that, in early 2024, so January, February time, and again, we're bookending the Major League Baseball season. We're playing at the time when winter leagues play, like the Mexican mm-hmm. Winter League and the Dominican Winter League, the Venezuelan Winter League. Um, so January, February 2024, we're going to be playing a 40-game season with six franchises. And then at the end of the 2024, like November time, we'll be playing a 60-game season with about with eight franchises playing. Will you be having tryouts like you got major leaguers, you got former minor leaguers, you got uh, international guys, you have guys just on the cusp that can try out or not yet? Yeah, yeah, we, 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 we will do that. You know, our job is to give people an opportunity to give, you know, players an opportunity who maybe have gotten overlooked. Um, you know, we obviously have a, a, a large uh, pool of players that we can select from from a player acquisition perspective, Mike. We already have enough players to play if we were playing yesterday. Mm-hmm. But the the the, uh, the idea is to find the best players, the players who are going to represent baseball united in the you know in the best possible way. Also, we want to find those kids, those needles in the haystack who are going to give, you know, and give those kids an opportunity, right? So we'll be announcing pretty soon some of the open tryouts we'll be doing and things like that. Um so we look forward to that, and we look forward to any listener, quite frankly, who thinks they got what it takes to play pro ball to uh, come out and give it a shot, give it a shot to lace them up out in Dubai. Merchandise is so important. When can fans uh, expect to see any kind of merch, maybe a logo, a hat, T-shirt? People love that stuff. When can we expect that? Oh, my, my man, you can, I can tell you, and I know you're a merch lover. <laughs> you're going to go crazy when you see the merch that we have. Um, the brands, the logos, I mean, simply unbelievable. You know, I'll tell you, we were at a, a we were, I won't say the city and I won't say the name of the team because that's all, you mm-hmm. know, something strategic that I want to be releasing. But we were in, we were in a city, um, you know, in the, 
the Gulf area in the Middle East, and we were presenting to a group of young, energetic sports fans. And, you know, they asked us, they asked us, can we see the logo and can we see the team name? We put it up on the screen, which was basically the logo of the team from the city that they represented. Okay. And they were like, oh, my God, that's awesome. Where do I get that? I need that right now. What we're doing is we feel really good about the brand of Baseball United. It's a young brand. It connects with this new generation, right? It's not something that's antiquated and old. Um, all of our brands are representative of a new generation trying to reach out to that younger generation. You know, there's a statistic, actually, one that's quite alarming that says that um, individuals, kids 18 years or younger in the United States, kids 18 years or younger in the United States, only 7% of those kids had, believes, well, only 7%, baseball is the, only 7% of those kids uh, believes baseball is their favorite sport, favorite sport. So what we understand here in Baseball United is it's so important for us to, to reach out to this young generation and, and really create, and to your point about merch, merch is so important, creating brands that we feel good about and that we know will appeal to this new demographic and new generation. So you'll see in the coming weeks and months, we'll be strategically releasing the names of the teams, the logos, merch will start going online. So we're really excited about that. And, and we know that there's going to be a huge market for this because uh, just what we're doing. And, and when you see it, the feel of it, it's real cool. It's real hip. And it, it's really going to engage this generation. It's a cricket mad world out there. Billion. The most watched thing in the world is uh, in India, Pakistan playing cricket. Cricket is king out there. You guys are going to shimmy your way in. You know, the little baby brothers coming in. Do you think there's going to be a crossover with cricket players? Maybe checking it out, maybe getting involved somehow, because that would be huge for you guys. See if they want to test their skills on the baseball diamond. Yeah, absolutely. We're surely open to it. I mean, early on, Mike, when we took on this project, we believed that our first strategy was going to be able to to start influencing cricket fans to become fans of the game of baseball. Since since, you know, that's still one of our strategies. But quite frankly, it's not necessarily the one we're trying tomorrow, because what's what has became such a breath of fresh air and we're so excited about the amount of fans on the ground today in the Middle East and in India, Pakistan, South Asia is, is overwhelming. Tens of millions of people are currently avid fans of the game of baseball. And, you know, from, from, a, from a product market fit, we're in a very good place. However, one of our really to go to the next level, we're really excited to start creating um, engagement between the cricket and baseball world. We have some really cool um, uh, let's say um, uh, things that we're doing in the horizon on the, in the near future in order to gauge some of that audience and really uh, try to inspire some of those, those baseball, those, those cricket bowlers to see if they can get on, on the mound and see if they can, uh, you know, bring it from the mound. We'll see. Uh, but we're really excited to give those kids an opportunity because we definitely think there is a skill set that will fit, uh, that will, you know, fit into what we're doing for sure. On paper, you know, you, you you tell anyone, sounds like fun. You're hanging out with former major leaguers, Hall of Fame guys. You're traveling the world, starting a baseball league, hanging out in Dubai. Obviously, there's hurdles. And what are the biggest hurdles you're facing with the league? Well, I think that, you know, anytime you're doing something that's new, 
people, you know, there's some doubt in, 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 in people's minds. Right. And anytime that you're a trailblazer, um, you know, people question why you're doing it. Right. And when you think about baseball has been so, you know, embedded in, in, in American culture and history for well over a hundred years, Latin American culture as well. And, and when you look at the game of baseball, how it, you know, hasn't necessarily made its way to this part of the world. You know, we are often asked, well, do you think that, you know, the, the, you know, the fans will, 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 will engage or will, will accept the game of baseball. And there's no doubt about it. As I told you, a lot of what we've done and a lot of the early work we've done recently is to really, um, to really go through that market and understand what's, what is the size of the baseball you know, the avid baseball fans there today. And then, like I told you, it's tens of millions of people. So there's no doubt that that's the case. But oftentimes, you know, I guess when you're when you're doing something from the beginning and when you're starting something from scratch, anytime you're starting anything from scratch, it's difficult. I mean, imagine me saying to you, hey, Mike, you know, you're from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, started, you know, and you told me you said, ah, I want to start, you know, a youth little league. That's enough of a challenge in and of itself. Now, now talk about a, a, a baseball, a professional baseball league with the infrastructure of youth development, you know, at, at the core of what we're doing on the other side of the globe. Obviously, it comes with its challenges. However, what I would say is, you know, this team uh, that we've assembled has more than met the task. And every single day we're overcoming challenges. And to be quite frank, you know, what we've been able to accomplish in the time that we have, um, there's no doubt it would take others a decade to do um, really inspiring stuff and, and just exciting. But, you know, obviously it's, it's difficult, what we're, you know, what we're pulling off here. Ready to finish up with some quick, his, uh, quick hit questions. Sure. You and I had a bar in New York city. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back. You want to impress everyone here in the bar. Who are you going to text? Well, I got to go with Mariano Barry. <laughs> Awesome answer. You know what's funny? I love when I ask people that and they give me the answer. Marianne Rivera, especially in New York, that might top almost all of them. That's a great answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about one sporting event in history John Medrick wishes he witnessed live? Ooh. Well, one sporting event, I'll, I'll change the question. I'm going to, the one that I'm sitting in Dubai in November of 2023, Baseball United's inaugural game and inaugural showcase is going to be the event that I'm at. And that, the day after, you can ask me the same question, and that would be it. That's The next day after some beers, I'm going to ask you, we'll, have, we'll do another podcast. Deal? Absolutely, brother. How about this? I know you're not a memorabilia guy. You're not a swag guy. Coolest piece of memorabilia that you own. It doesn't have to be sports-related. The coolest piece of memorabilia John Medrick owns is what? Okay, uh, I wouldn't call it a piece of memorabilia, but it's something that's quite important to me. I still have my badge and my um, ID card that was issued to me when I was working with the Jordanian uh, police intelligence, which I think there's probably like m myself and maybe the individual who's there now, maybe two. There's probably like two or three of these that exist in the world in which a, 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 an American cop I have I have an ID card um, from the the public security directorate of Jordan in written in Arabic, you know that gives me police power that that identified me as a police employee um, in the country when I was there, 
and with the shield. So I think that's like one of the one of my most prized possessions there. Last show you binge watched. Ooh, last show I binge watched. You know, I, I flew to Dubai. I was in Dubai um, not long ago, um, obviously with Baseball United. And I was on the flight back, which, as you know, was quite long. And they had a couple of episodes of uh, Ted Lasso. Okay. And I was quite late to the show. I was quite late, late to the Ted Lasso show. Because I'll say, Mike, I'm not a huge TV guy, right? Mm-hmm. So I watch a lot of sports and things like that. I don't really watch shows. So I just was trying to pass the time on the TV. And they had, like, the first eight episodes or something on the flight. And I watched it. And I literally got off the flight, and as I'm in the, the, the Uber on the way home, I'm downloading <laughs> guess, whatever it is. It's like on Prime TV or whatever it was, or Apple TV to get to get now the next few seasons. Yeah. So I, I would say last so. It's two fifteen in the morning. You come home. What's your binge meal? Two fifteen in the morning. Wife and kids are away. You're home alone. You can eat whatever you want in your boxer shorts, watching an old baseball game. What are you eating? Wow, that's a great question. Um, well, probably anything because I'm a <laughs> bit of these days. But, um, oh, man. <sighs> I can't go with a burger and fries because I'm sure that's what, like, most guys say. Uh, um, what am I eating? What am I eating? What am I eating? Ah, okay. You know what? I, I, and this is no joke. I would eat some good Arabic food, Lebanese food, right? Um, you know, shishtawuk, a little, you know, chish, chicken shishtabab, um, lamb, hummus, falafel, good Arabic food, Lebanese. I'm going to give the plug for you because I know you're not a big social media guy. Go to BaseballUnited.com, sign up for the newsletter. You'll be notified of all the big news, the big signings, the team's names dropping, everything in between. You guys are on Instagram at Baseball United. On Facebook at, at Baseball UTD. You're on Twitter. You're everywhere. John Medrick, this was an absolute blast. I had. I hope you had a great time. This was super fun, and we've been wanting to do this for a while. wish we were doing it live over some beers, but that will happen down the road. This is great. Baseball United, I'm excited about. And one thing on the other side of the mic, I've had you on. I've had Mariano a couple times, Barry, and they talk about their career. They'll talk about the Yankees and the Reds, World Series, Hall of Fames. The minute they talk about Baseball United, they kind of like, you know, perker up a little bit. They start smiling and they talk about it. Barry Larkin talked about, like you said, the girl who wants to play or the kid who's very poor but wants to play. He talks so passionately about the kids. Rivera obviously tells a story about him in Panama. All they care about the kids growing to love the game. And I'm like, oh, my God. I left there forgetting about professional baseball players over there. I'm like, oh, my God. In 15 years in the Middle East, in Dubai, in these other places where the game – there's going to be huge fans of baseball that weren't there 10 years ago. It's it's kind of mind-boggling, man. No, absolutely, Mike. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk a little bit about myself, but more importantly, to talk about Baseball United and about what we're going to do. Yeah, look, Mike, Baseball United is something that we're so passionate about. What I would end on is if you look at the world and you look at how fractured the world is today, um, the world that we live in, you know, the billions and billions and billions of dollars that are spent on diplomacy. Um, you know, we believe in Baseball United that we're more similar than we are different as humans. And we believe in, in really our core, at the core of what we're doing is the word unity, right? To unite people. And we believe that sports has that unique ability to unite people. And we, we truly believe the game of baseball can and will do just that. Uh, we actually 
you know, coined the phrase baseball diplomacy uh, because that's what we're, we're about. We're about bringing the game and all the goodwill that comes with it uh, to the rest of the world and, and trying to inspire um, unity through the game and opportunity through the game. So just an awesome, awesome opportunity that we're all humbled by. Um, obviously, I know you had to just throw out to the fans that, you know, you have me on talking about Baseball United, but you also have Barry and Mariano, so you're kind of overshadowing me a little bit, but that's okay. Um, um, so, no, but it, it's so, you're 100% right that that we're all just so passionate about this. And, and when you see from our CEO to our Hall of Famers, to the rest of, of us involved in Baseball United, it, it's just an awesome opportunity to do good uh, with good people and to really try to try to you know be a positive change in the world today through the game of baseball so thank thanks, you mike. again and again this has been a blast on my end because i've been here since the beginning when you told me hey mike i'm starting this little thing and then to watch it on the outside and watching it go to these lengths listen to you guys on mike francesa seeing you on dan patrick it's like are you kidding me so congratulations and i'm excited i Right now we're in the dirt level, and yet it's still huge. It's going to be mountains and mountains, and I'm loving watching this, man. Thank you again for giving me a front row seat to this. Thank you, Michael. Really appreciate all the help and all the hard work from you, and really appreciate your friendship. Um, and Baseball United appreciates all the support you give us. Thank you, I'll sir. talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you. All right, my brother. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.